Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mike sits down with Keio University professor Yuichi Hosoya to discuss one of the longest tenured players on the Asia chessboard, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Mike and Yuichi kick off the episode by discussing Yuichi's role as both an academic and an informal advisor to the Abe government on foreign policy. The two then turn to discussing how history and foreign policy are taught in Japanese universities. The conversation then moves towards analyzing the cornerstone of Abe's contribution to the Asia chessboard, the Free and Open Indo-Pacific, or FOIP. What does FOIP mean to Japan and to Abe? Is it fair to characterize FOIP as a counter-China strategy? What's ASEAN's role in FOIP? And how should the U.S. understand FOIP's evolution with the present law between Japan and China? Welcome back to the Asia chessboard. I'm Michael Green, and I'm joined by Hosoya Yuichi, Professor Hosoya is at Keio University, where he teaches international politics, and he's also a senior fellow at the Tokyo Foundation for Policy Research. Um, Hosoya Sensei is part of a new generation of Japanese scholars who apply history and political science theories and scholarship to questions of strategy in Japanese foreign policy, and in very influential ways in terms of their role in advisory commissions to the prime minister, Professor Josue has done that, uh, deliberations in the LDP, and generally the formulation of strategic concepts. So we're going to talk about how that works in Japan, about Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific uh, strategy or vision, the US-Japan alliance, and geopolitics in Asia. But uh, Sensei, let's start with you. How did you get into this international affairs business? When you were going to school, it was still pretty unusual for Japanese students to want to study history and strategy. So what happened? Yes, thank you very much. In my generation, there are many who actually have a very strong interest in international affairs because when we were high school students, we saw the fall of the Berlin Pole and the demise of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. All of these events actually awakened us uh, to international politics. So that's why in my generation, there are many who got interest in international affairs after seeing, having seen these series of really, really significant international events. Well, I went to a university in Japan about that time, I guess when you were a high school student, and there were very, very few professors who could teach realism in international affairs. And there were lots of Marxists, uh, lots of critical theory, but it was hard to find a realist. I mean, I studied with Sato Seizaburo at Tokyo University. Who'd you work with? How did you find your path? Well, exactly. I was really fortunate that I could attend a lecture and a seminar by Professor Shinichi Kitaoka. Professor Kitaoka was formerly a student of Professor Sato, Cesar Sato, right. and they were exceptional in advising the government, and also they are realists, and they really, really understand the importance of security issues. So I think was exceptional in touching upon this kind of a realist tradition of international politics in Japanese university. Very, very few in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s in that school in Japan. Sato Seizaburo at, at Tokyo University, Kosaka Masataka at, at Kyoto University. But that very small group of realists who were very much the minority um, really created this generation like yourself. And um, the Japanese government has um, reached out to people like you to serve on advisory commissions, on uh, revising interpretation of uh, Article 9, the 2014-15 Defense 
guidelines and uh, new legislation on the midterm defense fund, various um, advisory commissions on defense and foreign affairs. Um, did something happen in the Japanese government to be more receptive to scholars informing strategy? I mean, or was it mainly that people like you were being produced in Japanese universities? Was it a demand side signal from the government as well, or pri primarily a supply side that, that scholars like yourself were able to influence the debate? Yeah, I think uh, the both. I mean, the matching of the two trends. Uh, because the, the, the end of the Cold War changed uh, well, academic community in Japan. Because during the Cold War years, we had the really severe ideological confrontation. And the pacifist tradition, liberal, were really predominant in Japanese academia. But after the end of the Cold War, we began to notice the importance of the realist tradition in Japanese academic community. Uh, because, uh, well, we were really disillusioned by socialist dream. And after that, I think that uh, in our generation, uh, we are really, really neutral. Uh, and we are basically free from such kind of ideological battle. We are really interested in the facts, historical facts, and the fact happened today. And also, uh, so we observe international relations from a quite neutral, somewhat uh, quite value-free way of thinking. But that's why I think that the government official, after reading my books or articles, they, I think, felt that new generation of scholars actually came into academia. That's why. This is a beginning, I think. So the, the Abe government, you think, is using facts and using history. I wish that were true. <laughs> more in our government and some other governments in the world, but, but it's, it's fair to say then that the Aubrey government is actually looking for facts and data and history to back up its strategic thinking. Yeah, I think that not just Prime Minister Abe, but other conservative politicians as well. They first thought, perhaps, that well, historical uh, academic community was really occupied by Marxist historians. Mm -hmm. Partly, I think it was true, but... Uh, in our generation, Marxist historians are not so predominant. And we are relying on the facts. And uh, including Prime Minister Abe, these politicians began to think that they can rely on some of the historical research written by these younger generation scholars. That's why I think that they are becoming more and more interested in the works written by, I think, younger generation scholars like me. So part of the impact here is that historians like yourself, international relations theorists, and in Japan still, um, the study of international relations is um, is not heavily theorized like the United States and not focused on data sets and methodology. It really is a, still a, a hybrid approach, it seems to me, of history, political science in, in pursuit of, of knowledge, which is one reason why it's useful to the government. But... The government, you know, valued this. The foreign ministry, defense ministry started valuing this more. But within the liberal democratic party, there were some real conservative hotheads on the right who also studied in this period with Marxists, um, who were taught that everything Japan did was wrong. The Japan alliance was wrong. I mean, that was a lot of the education people went through, uh, in Japan, uh, from junior high school on because of the teachers union. Some of these politicians, as they've come of age and come to power, many of them around Prime Minister Abe have argued, now it's time for Japan to teach the correct history and teach that Japan didn't do anything wrong and that Japanese colonialism was benevolent and various other things that in themselves are a little bit ahistorical. And you've been pulled in 
because you are respected to engage in some of these political uh, groups and these advisory committees. Um, and my impression is you've you've uh, tamed them a little bit. You've made them think about historical inquiry in a more balanced way and get away from history as propaganda. Is that right or is this battle still underway? I don't know very well whether I was taming them or I could tame them, but basically I discussed with them and because they were interested in history. And they thought in the beginning that the historical study were basically distorted by uh, left-wing historians. And facts were distorted by left-wing historians. But uh, they began to learn that history was also distorted by right-wingers as well. So both right-wingers and left-wingers have been distorting historical facts. Mm -hmm. And they are really interested in facts and uh, history as itself. But that's why they listen to really, really seriously about uh, these kind of uh, new research based on archives or based on facts and based on documents. And they try to know more about these historical facts. And they support this kind of historical research. So in that way, we are providing new kind of ideological free historical research. And they are also interested in, in this kind of a new outcome written by younger generation scholars. So I think that when we meet together, uh, they are really serious enough to learn or study something new from these new works. Was this part of the process, this debate and discussion, the study of history that led to Prime Minister Abe's statement on the 70th anniversary of the end of the war in 2015, which was generally well-received within Japan, well-received by democracies, criticized a little bit by China, but generally successful as a diplomatic move um, and also as a political move to create some consensus about the past. Not perfect. A lot of people can find areas to criticize. But was this debate and historical inquiry part of that process that led to that? I believe so. As I said, during the Cold War years, historical research was really, really occupied by ideological confrontation. But in my generation, uh, we are much more neutral. And I think that the Prime Minister Abe was trying to create a national consensus on history because otherwise we can create, we, can, we cannot construct sound uh, foreign policy supported by much broader Japanese public opinion. That's why I think that Prime Minister Abe was really successful in creating a kind of national consensus on historical understanding, which can accepted by uh, some right-wingers and some left-wingers, as well as uh, some middle ground people. But that's why I think that based on that historical understanding, Prime Minister Abe's foreign policy has become much stronger based upon much broader support of Japanese people. So the framework that uh Prime Minister Abe has articulated, the Japanese government has articulated for its approach to foreign policy strategy is the free and open Indo-Pacific vision, used to be called free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. It is informed by geography, by history. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about FOIP and then let's talk about sort of the intellectual roots uh, of that concept. Yes. Uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, for the first time, launched diplomatic doctrine in August 2016. And this was the next year when Prime Minister Abe launched his historical statement in August 2015. His statement on the 70th anniversary. Exactly. Yeah. 
And this was possible because Japanese foreign policy could be much broadly supported by Asian countries beforehand. Something what Japan was trying to do was often regarded as the revival of pre-war Japanese invasion or a greater East Asian prosperity sphere or something. That's why there are many, many reluctance among Japanese politicians to learn something like this. But after 2015, I think that uh, Japanese political leaders could become much more brave or bold enough to try to create something new, quite strong diplomatic initiative supported by the American people. A vision not Australian. just for Japan's foreign policy, a vision for the whole region, really. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So previously, Japanese foreign policy was much more occupied by bilateralism, mm -hmm. bilateral relations between Japan and the United States, between Japan and Russia, or between Japan and China. But uh, that diplomatic initiative, I mean, FOIP, free and open in the Pacific vision or strategy, uh, has much broader scope. And it is really exceptional for Japanese prime minister to launch something like this. So in the sense, this is quite new. What are the roots? Where did it come from? The Lutz actually comes from Prime Minister Abe's speech in New Delhi mm -hmm. in 2007, September, when he launched a new concept of the confluence of two sheets by combining two huge oceans, Pacific Ocean and Indian Ocean. But combining two sheets, we can create something huge, like in the Pacific region. This is a mega region which covers so many sub-regions. Northeast Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Middle East and East Africa, Australia. So in, by combining these sub-regions, I think that we can furthermore accelerate economic growth in the region. At its core, though, is the free and open Indo-Pacific vision essentially, is it a balance of power strategy? I mean, um, the balance of power between Japan and China is shifting in unfavorable ways for Japan. But there are, within a multipolar Asia, other powers like India, and Abe started with the Quad, which included India and Australia and Japan and the US, in his first term as prime minister in 2006 and seven. So is this about expanding the number of countries who are on Japan's side to protect rules and values? Or is this about a vision for inclusive growth in Asia that includes China or both? It's, it's a little bit of a combination of uh, national objectives, it seems to me. Yes, I agree with the, the last explanation. I mean, this is a combination of so many different kinds of objectives. And basically, any kind of regional cooperation needs some philosophy or idea. And I think that Japan and the United States should bring important values and ideas into that region, I mean, the Indo-Pacific, democracy, the respect for human rights, and the freedom, and rule of law. Uh, if Japan and the United States don't do that, of course, China will do that. China will bring different kind of ideas to the region. And we don't like to see that. I mean, because uh, our political system is different from Chinese political system. And as well, we, I mean, the Japanese people basically strongly desire the continuation of American leadership. Right. And the United States remain the leader in the region. Of course, China can have much higher position and uh, will be respected more in the region. But still, I would say that the United States should remain the only re real leader in the region 
in Japan has been supporting that. So U.S.-Japan alliance is the main tool to invite the United States in the region and to support American leadership in the region. That's why I think that the U.S.-Japan alliance has to be the core of Japanese diplomatic strategy, like for you. So the free and open Indo-Pacific vision really has its uh, genesis in internal debates in Japan and in some ways in the U.S., because this is a vision that, that, that goes back in the U.S. strategic history to people like Alfred Thayer Mahan and even Commodore Perry, who argued um, in the 1850s that someday the Asia-Pacific region would be kept open by the collaboration of big maritime democracies. And he mentioned Japan, the U.S., Britain, and Germany, potentially Germany. So there's a long history in the U.S. and, and perhaps in Japan as well of thinking about how to maintain a favorable balance of power, rules-based, uh, open. But there's another side to FOIP, which is in the past has been more controversial. You know, when, when Abe-san first proposed uh, the Quad, the Japan, Australia, India Quad in 2006 and seven, or the Security Diamond when he first came back in 2012, these were very much, you know, counter to China and very much emphasizing alignment among democracies. And I wonder if it even has a, some roots in earlier debates in Japan in the 60s and 70s, because Abe, of course, comes out of the so-called Hishiruha, you know, the group of LDP leaders who were not in the mainstream of the party, uh, flowing from Yoshida Shigeru on, who really wanted to engage China and work with China. And the resistance to that came from more ideological people like, you know, Kishi, Abe's grandfather. And so, you know, people were suspicious of this initially because it had that, some critics would say, neocon <laughs> flavor of countering communism, countering China. Is is that fair? And is it gone? Is that still in there somewhere? Maybe both. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can find some elements like that in the current Japanese diplomatic initiative, even though the element is not so huge. Mm -hmm. In that, well, it means that in the beginning, as you said, uh, Prime Minister Abe wanted to promote the idea of quad. I mean, the cooperation among democracies, a, a bigger democracies, the United States, Japan, India, and Australia in the region. But little by little, I think that the Japanese government realized that uh, if we promote this crowd, ASEAN, India, Australia uh, couldn't be so happy to see it because mm -hmm. uh, they try to maintain a very, very deep, strong economic relationship with China. And if we try to exclude China, they uh, cannot fully support this diplomatic initiative and also ASEAN as well. ASEAN countries really don't like to see the division uh, of the region in the Pacific into two opposing camps because ASEAN needs both the United States and China. So that's why I think that after seeing their opposition to this diplomatic concept, I mean, the FOIP, based on the Quad, I think that the Japanese government has been slowly transformed this into a different form. And mm -hmm. I call it as a FOIP 2.0. FOIP 2.0 is not the containment strategy of China, even though FOIP 1 was partly the containment strategy by four democracies. So basically, ideologically, I think that the Japanese government uh, re re remained to stick to the norms like democracy, human rights, and so on. Japanese government doesn't abandon this kind of important norms. But still, uh, it's not quite necessary to openly exclude China from the framework because the, the, the essence 
FOIP is also the connectivity. Connectivity means that Japan needs to connect sub-regions of the mega-region of the Indo-Pacific, including China. So it's evolved over time towards what you call FOIP 2.0 from a somewhat harder-edged Abe vision of uniting maritime democracies in a very Mahanian way uh, to deal with this China challenge. It's evolved from that towards something somewhat more inclusive, um, including agreement between Japan and China in, in theory, in principle, that China's Belt and Road Initiative, Japan's infrastructure under FOIP might work together, things like that. But you're saying, I think, that the key variable in that was actually ASEAN and India to some extent, but it was these countries that don't want to have to choose. And so it's interesting, in a game of influence, strategic influence between Japan, China, the US, Japan listened to ASEAN. Uh, and uh, even though ASEAN as an organization has failed spectacularly to deal with security challenges like the South China Sea, what you're telling me that is that ASEAN has significant influence on the strategic choices of big powers like Japan and China, because Japan adjusted FOIP because of ASEAN's preferences for not having to choose for a more inclusive vision. Yeah. First of all, I would like to say that Japan is the only great power which has been supporting strongly the ASEAN centrality in the last four decades, four or five decades. ASEAN in the beginning was quite confrontational to the expansion of Chinese communist ideology in the region. So uh, at that time, ASEAN was the organization to defend themselves from the spread of communism in the region. And Japan has been supporting ASEAN uh, ideologically, and also because uh, ASEAN should be the core of regional, any kind of regional cooperation in the region. Because if ASEAN leads a process, every great power can join in. If mm-hmm. China leads a process, maybe United States and Japan are not so happy. And if United States lead the process, China cannot join in. So in that sense, if ASEAN leads, we all can join in. And the other thing is that geographically, ASEAN is important because without ASEAN, we cannot combine two sheets. So in that sense, from the geopolitical point of view, ASEAN is really essential. So in the sense, we have to include ASEAN in our camp. And then we can be more influential, both the United States and Japan can be more influential in the region. In the and, and you include ASEAN by being more moderate, ultimately. The yes. strategic play, if you're going to compete, ironically, is be a little more moderate. Exactly. <laughs> so what about the U.S. as a factor? Um, when Abe came back to power, it was the Obama administration, 2012-13. Uh, Xi Jinping had proposed the new model of great power relations, which is the antithesis of the FOIP vision. It's a, it's a vision of a bipolar Asia where the U.S. and China would avoid a Thucydides trap and conflict by, you know, in the worst case scenario for Japan, establishing spheres of influence without any input from Japan or India or Australia. Now the Trump administration, for all of its warts and flaws, uh, at least at the level of the national security uh, establishment, has fully embraced this this FOIP type of maritime vision and, and has clearly rejected uh, a new model of great power relations or some kind of G2 or bipolar condominium in Asia. Um, is that also a factor behind what you call FOIP 2.0? In other words, does Japan have more room for maneuver now because the U.S. has rejected a bipolar condominium with China? Or even is Japan now improving relations with China because the U.S. has become a little unpredictable? How much is the U.S. a factor in this evolution of the FOIP strategy? Yeah, of course, this is a very important factor or a key factor 
why Japan launches diplomatic initiative. Because I think that in this region, there are three great powers, United States, China, and Japan, who actually uh, can bring some diplomatic initiative. You didn't mention India. I'm curious why. When you say this well, region, you mean East India Asia? India is a regional superpower. Mm-hmm. India is interested in the region, but not beyond the region. Mm-hmm. India is becoming more and more influential and more and more powerful. So within a decade or two, I think that the India will become a global superpower. But still, I would say that India mind is quite regional. Mm-hmm. Uh, they stick to the region. So that's why I think that it takes time. So in that sense, United States, China, and Japan. And if United States has no particular interest in creating some diplomatic initiative in the region, uh, the remaining great power would be China. Mm-hmm. And China is proposing a quite uh, important diplomatic initiative such as the BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. And I think that uh, we, Japan, cannot fully join in the process because we respect human rights, democracy, rule of law, and so on. So our basic ideology is political system is quite different from Chinese political system. If China tries to expand that ideology, uh, Japan will become much more defensive uh, without American strong leadership. So it means that until the day when the United States will fully become regional, the most important uh, uh, leader, I think that uh, Japan has been trying to and continue to try to uh, consolidate these important norms in the region. And uh, then I think that the United States can come back to the original position. Otherwise, if China will become more and more influential in the region, it will be difficult and more difficult for the United States to come back to this region. Of course, I don't think that the United States leave this region, but uh, I think that Japan is trying to create the atmosphere where the United States or the American people really feel that they really like to come back or to engage more deeply. Do you think that uh, there's any cause for worry in Washington about FOIP 2.0 and the evolution of a more benevolent version of FOIP vis-a-vis China? Yeah, I think so. Don't worry or worry? I have some worry. You should be a little bit worried. Exactly, because uh, security concern, economic concern, security interests and economic interests are two fields. Mm -hmm. So we uh, cannot remove any one field. We need both security interests and uh, economic interests. But uh, today, I think that uh, Japanese foreign policy is a little bit too much orienting towards economic consideration, economic cooperation with Russia, economic cooperation with China. And I don't think that the Prime Minister Abe uh, loses his interest in security policy. But uh, uh, the government, Japanese government, always needs to strike the balance between the two considerations. That's why I want uh, the Japanese government to focus a little bit more on security issues. So we're not so we're not as well aligned um, as we should be. Sounds like it may also be that the Abe uh, government in 2013 in its national security strategy articulated a very clear all of government approach to competing yeah. with China. The U.S. didn't do that till 2017. 
really, I, I worked on two national security strategies for 25 years. We never mentioned competition with China. Uh, in 2017, to its credit, the Trump administration did say we're in competition with China. But Japan is now five, six years into implementing its strategy, and the cooperation with China piece is coming in a little bit. And it could be that the U.S., having finally figured out we're really in strategic competition with China, is eventually going to have to do what Japan did and figure out, okay, we're competing, we're strengthening our alliance, but where and when and how can we cooperate? So it, it could be that Japan's just a little bit ahead of us right now in terms of the strategic consensus, even though that may not be um, a source of concern. It certainly is something to watch. Last question for you. What, what do your students in Keio think of all this? Is the younger generation of Japanese studying international affairs uh, are they more realist? Are they more idealistic? Are they more or less interested? What are you finding among your students? Keio is one of the best schools in Asia, of course. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, in the world, I should say. <laughs> Thank you very much. Which is why at Georgetown, we always love Keio students. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm trying to encourage Japanese Keio University students to study Georgetown as well. Great. Because Georgetown is the best uh, school for international relations, international politics, particularly Asian studies. That's why I... I'm always encouraging them to study here. Uh, one other thing, uh, what I want to mention is that the more and more Japanese students actually study in Chinese universities. Mm -hmm. They're interested in learning Chinese like many American young students. And at the same time, uh, they're realists. So they are not very much attracted by Chinese culture or Chinese politics and uh, the current Chinese society. So uh, they are pragmatic. That's why they think that they know more about China. Mm. But at the same time, uh, they are totally supporting important value of democracy, rule of law, and freedom, and so on. They, of course, cannot abandon these. So uh, they are neutral in the sense, ideologically, of course, supporting democracy, human rights, and so on. But uh, they are less ideological than before. This is one thing. The other thing is that uh, uh, they are much more interested in business issues, uh, much less on public goods or public affairs. So this is, I think, global trend. Students are losing interest in politics, mm. international relations, and the public goods and public affairs. And they are much more interested in uh, business issues, economic mm. issues. And, uh, and so their focus is becoming narrower and narrower. So I'm trying to encourage them to have much broader perspective. On the other hand, I feel that Chinese students have a really, really broad perspective. Not all, but many. So in the sense, uh, we are, are, are engaging several different battles or competitions, a competition with China, a science technology field, of course, and the politics as well. And a real political arena, uh, we are competing each other, of course. But uh, intellectually, we are competing with China as well. Of course, we can collaborate with them. But at the same time, Japan uh, needs to be relevant. Japan needs to be powerful enough to encourage young students to go abroad and to be more intellectual. In the sense, I think that the KO students are brilliant, but uh, they should have much broader perspective first of all, and they should also have much stronger interest in public affairs. So then I think that they can uh, open up their mind to the world 
Well, Professor Josue Yoichi, thank you for reminding us uh, that ideas matter in statecraft, that history matters, and that uh, uh, Japan's academy is producing more and more students who can think, despite these challenges you mentioned, and more ideas. And these ideas are influential in Japan, but they're influential in U.S. strategy now. We are, we are learning from each other and learn from you today. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.